Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, has the former Fed boss Alan Greenspan carried too much blame for the financial crash? We delve into how the man who spent 19 years as the most powerful financial statesman in the world should be viewed by history from action. He wasn't just some egghead who'd wandered in from MIT. He knew everybody in Washington and he could pull levers, call in favours and outsmart people. To inaction. He committed one of the great errors of monetary policy history. He raises all the right questions, but he doesn't act. Why doesn't he act? Alan Greenspan was named as chairman of the Federal Reserve in 1987 and served in that post for 19 years, overseeing unprecedented economic growth and building a worldwide reputation as a financial maestro and economic guru. By the end of the 90s, a joke was going the rounds. How many bankers does it take to screw in a light bulb? The answer, one. Greenspan holds the bulb and the world revolves around him. But his reputation would not stay so flattering. Shortly after his tenure ended, the financial crash hit and Greenspan's star fell abruptly, leading to scenes such as these when he testified before the American Congress in 2008. You found a flaw in the reality. A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works. Now, a new biography by Sebastian Malaby contends that Greenspan was not nearly so naive about the impending crash as his critics suppose, and that while his failure to act before the crisis deserves scrutiny, much of the conventional wisdom underpinning the drive to bury him is simply wrong. So, did Greenspan really earn the status of financial villain? I'm joined by Sebastian Malaby, formerly a journalist at The Economist, and now a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. He's married to The Economist's editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, but no fear or favour here. Sebastian, hello. Nice to be with you. And I'm joined down the line by Neil Ferguson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and authority on the history of finance, economics and banking. Neil, thank you for joining us too. My pleasure. So, Sebastian, the big question to open up, do you essentially believe that Alan Greenspan has been unfairly vilified since the financial crash? Well, Anne, I mean, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he was guilty because you cannot preside over the global financial system. You can't be the most important economist in the world for 19 years and then have no blame for what happened right after you leave. So he's guilty to that extent. But what I think is interesting is that he's guilty in a different way from everybody thought. Everybody thought that the global financial system was run by this believer in self-policing efficient markets, and he was so naive he didn't think there could be a crash, and therefore he was sort of asleep at the switch when it came to excess leverage. What I discovered in the course of five years' research is that he wrote continuously about crashes. He was obsessed with exactly the thing that undid him. We're going to unpack that a bit more with Sebastian later. But, Neil, what's your instinctive take here? I think the central question is whether or not monetary policy should have been tighter 2002 to 2004. And the answer is yes. And some of us said so at the time. So I'm a big fan of this book. I think it's a wonderful biography. And yet there's just no getting away from the fact that he committed one of the great errors of monetary policy policy history, overlooking all the flashing red lights, saying that the housing bubble was as big a danger to financial stability as the 
stock market bubble had been in the 1920s. So we'll come back, I think, to those flashing lights on the dashboard and why they weren't spotted by Greenspan. But I thought we would start, Sebastian, with laying out a bit more about his early life, and particularly his interest as a young man in, in libertarianism. That was rather surprising to me, quite how devoted he was indeed to the, the cult of Ayn Rand. Yes, well, I mean, Ayn Rand, eccentric Russian philosopher, come novelist, maybe philosopher as being kind, um, met Greenspan when he was in his 30s and sort of adopted him. At first, she thought he was insufficiently solicitous of her evident brilliance. Uh, but after a while, um, she accepted that he was a true devotee. And they were extremely close, such that um, even into Greenspan's 50s, when he was being sworn in as the uh, chief economist in the Gerald Ford White House, Greenspan invited three people to that swearing-in ceremony. Uh, one was his mother, one was Ayn Rand, and one was Ayn Rand's husband. So she was almost a surrogate mother, this sort of libertarian cult figure. He rises to the Fed in 1987 to the, the top job, the Reagan era. And what are the circumstances that take him there? Essentially, what's the job? Because it's one of those jobs that does change with whoever's in power a bit in the White House. Well, uh, the Republican administration, the Reagan administration, was fed up with Paul Volcker and the Republicans clearly wanted a party loyalist. And they went for Alan Greenspan, who had both economic credibility, but also, crucially, political loyalty. And they were a bit surprised by what they got later after they put him in office. Neil, what do you think his unique selling point was in terms of his claim to that job, which is hotly contested, of course? Well, I think there are two things. One is that Greenspan's route to being considered an economist was unusual. He didn't at all go down the conventional academic path. He actually was a, a kind of data geek before data geeks existed. Somebody who, in some measure, are not a didact, immersed himself in the minutiae of industrial statistics. And I think that's important because it was always a characteristic feature of the later Greenspan, the sort of zenith Greenspan, that he had this mastery of an enormous range of different economic indicators. And this was often the way in which he could beat uh, critics into submission. The other thing that Sebastian shows is that while he was a data geek, Greenspan was also, or later became, politically very skilled. And once he joined the Nixon campaign in 1968, he underwent the kind of political education that no other administration could possibly have offered. By the time Gerald Ford was president, Greenspan was sufficiently deft as a political player to get the better of Henry Kissinger over Kissinger's scheme for a commodity price setting as a strategic device. It's actually Greenspan who emerges the winner. And I think that's the key combination. He's, he's a data geek, but he's also politically pretty skilled. We live in a time, Anne, of contempt for experts. The backlash both in Britain over the Brexit vote where experts are sort of, you know, on the back foot and also in Donald Trump's America. And what's striking about Greenspan is that he was the expert who could actually play politics in a more Machiavellian and effective way than most politicians. Greenspan would pretend to agree with people and then go around behind their back and make sure that their plan got frustrated by knowing everybody. I mean, my book is called The Man Who Knew, and there are many meanings in that title. 
But one of them is he knew everybody in Washington and he could pull levers, call in favours and outsmart people. But wasn't it a problem that he was so empirically focused, given that such a lot of what he was going to have to deal with was about big shifts in social impact, in behaviour? Was that always a weakness? Is he too much of an empiricist? No, actually, I wouldn't say that at all. I think that his focus on data meant that, by extension, he was not quite as obsessed with models as the next generation of trained economists. So by the time you get, you know, Greenspan was doing graduate work in the early 50s. By the time you skip 20 years ahead or so, uh, economists doing graduate work are kind of taking the data for granted. They're not asking where it came from. And instead, they are building models with the data and focusing on the mathematics that, that joins up the data. And because Greenspan didn't have that generational training, he was freed from sort of assumptions that were extremely dangerous in the crisis. He didn't necessarily think that the relationship between interest rates and the markets and the economy were always going to be the same. He assumed that they would change. And that's exactly what you don't assume if you're obsessed with economic models. Neil, do you agree with that? I do, and I think it's it's one of the big shifts of our time that someone like Greenspan, whose career had in fact been as a consultant, a Wall Street analyst, came to be replaced by straight, up-and-down, Ivy League-type economics professors who really lived and breathed models. That was a hugely important shift. And I think when one looks at Greenspan's career in retrospect, it's clear that for much of it, his independence of, let's call it, mainstream macroeconomics was a strength. He wasn't uh, just some egghead who'd wandered in from MIT. He was already a seasoned beltway operator, as Sebastian shows. When it came to the key decisions in the mid-2000s, Actually, he was at a disadvantage because I think to to see the urgent need to tighten policy after 2001, you kind of had to listen to some of the model builders. One of the ironies, of course, of what Neil's just been saying is that after the crisis in 2008, one of the pieces of conventional wisdom that came out was obviously economists should be less obsessed with models. Obviously, they should do more financial history. And if we'd only had people like that in power, perhaps we would not be in this mess. Well, guess what? We did have people like that in power, precisely like that. That was the whole thing about Greenspan. Tell us a bit, if you could, about his personality, Sebastian, and and how much you think that influenced the Greenspan that we saw in policy. I was fascinated by his romance with Barbara Walters, the great sort of TV anchor, who was a big figure. She was a big social figure both in Washington, but also in the penumbra of Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. She was the glamorous lady from American television who often came and floated round in that salon. And he seemed to want to be part of that world. Yes, I mean, Greenspan was a very unusual character, is a very unusual character. And one simple observation illustrates that, which is that He was not against marriage. He did it twice, but he was single between the age of 27 and 71. That is an unusual formula. And in between uh, being 27 and 71, as he once said to me, he dated senators, news anchors and beauty queens and most in between. So he was on the one hand extremely shy and private and self-contained, which explains why he didn't get married and wasn't married for much of his life. On the other hand, he had an enormous need for affirmation 
and going to a party with a glamorous woman on his arm was definitely part of what he needed to function. In the book, you say he was the man who knew, and you pulled that out as, as the title, which is instructive in itself, not the man who acted, as many people would see it, when action was needed. So what can we prove that he knew, and why didn't it result in precautionary action that would have averted or at least softened the edge of the crash? Well, all biographers live for unexpected discoveries, you know, the sort of the tape recording that puts your subject in an unexpected light. And I had this experience of going to see Greenspan in his office. Whenever I asked about his early intellectual development, his eyes would sort of flit up to a shelf just above me and rest on a fat binder. And after a while, I looked up there too, and I saw there was this big binder that probably had some collection of papers, maybe a PhD thesis. And I went ding inside my head because his PhD thesis was missing. And friends of mine at the Wall Street Journal had tried very hard to get it. It had so-called disappeared from New York University Library. And when I said to him, I'd love to have your PhD thesis, and then looked up at that binder, he gave it to me. And when I read it, it was evident why it had been convenient that it had disappeared hitherto. And what it showed was this obsession with financial instability that went back to Greenspan's writings in the 1950s, a preoccupation with bubbles, a preoccupation with market overshoots, a sense that in the 1920s, the Fed had been culpable in allowing the bubble to take place in in the 20s, and therefore that the Fed should be actually abolished. I mean, he said the creation of the Fed was a historic disaster. And it's part of why, you know, to me, he is the man who knew. He knew about this kind of financial instability, which then in an almost Shakespearean way uh, laid him low at the end of his career. A lot of the layman's take on the legacy of Greenspan, or or rather the blame game, if you like, is it's just pretty simple, really. It's why did he not consider greater banking regulation when so many clues to what was going on were hidden in plain sight? What's the answer to that, Sebastian? Well, through Freedom of Information Act uh, disclosures, one can read the transcripts of discussions within the Fed in the early 2000s about what should be done on the subprime mortgage issue. And uh, the Fed understood that um, these products were dangerous, that they would probably not be paid back, they were being missold, and they wanted to do something about it. And what people don't know, or if they've forgotten, is that the Fed actually did do something. It passed new regulations banning the most extreme kinds of subprime mortgages. And then what happened next is very instructive. The industry simply tweaked the products to get around the rules. And secondly, the enforcement of the rules that the Fed had written was up to an alphabet soup of other American regulatory agencies, which did nothing. And so the Fed understood, the Fed tried, and the Fed failed. And I think that's a lesson about politics, the politics of financial regulation in America, about the limits of the Fed's power. The fundamental problem of monetary policy remains the same. And that problem is that markets attach almost Wizard of Oz-like importance to the Fed chair, but the Fed chair has an essentially impossible job, uh, which is somehow to strike a balance between the conflicting mandates that the Fed has, price stability, something like full employment, and then all the hidden mandates that nobody talks about, or at least not in public, the mandate which says, don't let the stock market crash. And the mandate that says, remember about the rest of the world, don't blow it up either. You can't satisfy all four of those things very easily. And in that sense, all Fed chairs, careers, 
are bound to end in failure. Now, you spoke earlier about red lights flashing that you felt he could have taken more cognizance of. Now you seem to be suggesting that job's just so blooming difficult that nobody could possibly combine this act and it not go wrong at some time. And of course, he was there for a very long time. So where does the blame attach? Well, the point here is that if you go back to the debates of the 2000s, the early 2000s, Greenspan was one of those people who perhaps got ahead of the game in worrying about deflation. And then there was a strange phenomenon that Robert Schiller has talked about. And that phenomenon was groupthink amongst economists who, perhaps in order to ensure they remained in the room where it happens, tended not to observe too loudly that U.S. housing was getting out of control. Hardly anybody warned that this was heading for disaster. And so I don't think it's right or fair to pin the blame exclusively in Greenspan. He just happened to be in the chair that matters most. I am going to ask you to pin a bit of blame on, on Greenspan, Sebastian, because I think your your book is, is generous in, in trying to understand all of this complexity. But if you have to put your finger on what it is about him at the top of the Fed, the role of the Fed, that leads to a quite catastrophic failure, what is it? I think that on the regulatory side, the Fed was bound to fail because of the politics of regulation, as I've said. On the monetary side, I think Greenspan had complete power over what the Fed did. He was dominant in the committee that set interest rates, and he got it wrong. He should have been willing to raise interest rates to uh, address the bubble because regulation wasn't going to do it for him. And the reason he didn't, it's almost excruciating to read the transcripts of the discussions within the Fed. He raises all the right questions, but he doesn't act. Why doesn't he act? Well, I think he felt that the consensus around the Fed, around the central bank, allowed him to use interest rates to control inflation, but not to prick bubbles. He wasn't willing to challenge that consensus, although he could have done. And this is where we go back to, you know, his character and the way that he didn't quite have the right stuff to make himself unpopular. That desire for affirmation expressed by the beautiful woman on his arm at a party expressed itself in monetary terms in the sense that he was not willing uh, to make himself unpopular. A desire to be loved on the part of a shy person who did not like confrontation. How do you think that Greenspan feels now, Sebastian? You've spent so much time with your subject. What do you think his view of his own failings is? I think he finds it painful to dwell too much on these questions. And I think what he has said about his culpability is almost, it's wrong and it's misleading. What he said famously to Congress was, I found a flaw. I found a flaw in my worldview, in my ideology. And he was referring to this idea that financial institutions would protect their own interests such that they would not take excess risk and blow the world up. This is how he described his own error. The reality, I know, from reading through everything he said and did over his career, is that he had lived through crisis after crisis, starting with Penn Central, the railroad that blew up in 1970, and through a whole series of things. So he knew that financiers do not avoid excess risk. His flaw, as presented to the public, was fictitious. What do you think we should learn from the story of Alan Greenspan? Neil, you first. The importance of history. Because in the end, what leads the United States and the world economy to catastrophe is a curious combination 
wonkish professors with new Keynesian models of the economy that spew out completely erroneous projections and politicized central bankers like Alan Greenspan, who in the end betray their own uh, youthful principles. History was a better guide to the problems that were accumulating in the 2000s than economics. And I think we need to get the next generation of policymakers to be properly schooled in economic and financial history, because otherwise, it's just going to be another set of people who studied economics and then got corrupted by Washington. I'd like to offer you an upbeat lesson. We live in a time of the discrediting of experts in the sense that populists who almost make a virtue of not dwelling on the details will sweep all before them. And Greenspan shows us this doesn't have to be the way, that there are periods when expertise is valued. And although experts make mistakes, and Greenspan made a big one, it's a lot better to be an expert than to be the opposite. And I think he teaches us how experts can wield power, be influential, and make the world generally a better place. And thank you, Sebastian Malaby and Neil Ferguson. But what do you think and what do you make of Alan Greenspan's legacy? Let us know via Twitter at Economist Radio or via email to radio at economist.com. The man who knew is out now. Well, that's it for The Economist Asks this week. In London and from Stanford, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating... Pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.